Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Stockwell service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. So, good morning. Let me add my welcome to you if you are new or visiting. Um, you have happened to come along in the middle of a three-week series on giving. So, well done you. Of all the preachers and all the churches in all the world, you happen to walk into mine. Um, so we are going to be talking about giving. Um, it's always a little awkward talking about money, isn't it? It's awkward to be there sitting, hearing a talk on money. It's awkward to be here, especially as we're talking about giving to the church. So I'm effectively asking you to give to the organization that pays my salary. Um, just to like, I feel like I should put this out there. I don't get a bonus. I don't, I'm not on commission or anything. Um, nothing happened. I guess if you guys stop giving, we'll have some conversations about what Jackson and I should do. But apart from that, this is not related to me. Um, I'm just really excited that we have this opportunity to talk about our attitude towards money and talk about, I guess, kind of the, the culture that we are trying to create here in this particular church community. And I know it's probably so obvious it doesn't need stating that uh, we want the culture here to reflect the character of Jesus. I mean, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? And in the scriptures, we see that Jesus is extravagantly and sacrificially and joyfully generous, that he gladly gave away everything, even gave away his life. So one of my favorite verses in the whole of the Bible is from 2 Corinthians 8. And in that, the Apostle Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And we see that this is who Jesus is. He is generous. And so if we want to be like Jesus, which I'm guessing many of us do, then we also want to grow in generosity as well. Now, I guess I should say we want to become more generous because we, Jackson and I, are very aware that this is an extremely generous community. Um, I don't know if you were here last week. Uh, Dave mentioned that when Dave's the senior leader of Christchurch, started the church almost 15 years ago, uh, there's 20 of us in a room in Birmingham. That's how we started, uh, moved to London. And he said that one of his uh, friends who leads a church in London, a big church in London, told him basically, don't do this. Don't try and start a church in London. It is impossible. It's just too expensive. Like with no history, no legacy, no church building, like you will start and you will probably fail because that's what happens when people start churches in London. And the very fact that we are here 15 years later is testament to the generous giving of this church community, the ongoing giving of this church community. And it really is incredible. And we have seen that up close and personal. We have observed it happening in loads of different ways, not just kind of money to church, but money to one another. We've been recipients ourselves of the generosity of people in this congregation. Every now and again, one of my favorite things is I get to be middleman between someone who wants to give money to someone else secretly. So they come and they give money to the church, give it to me and say, can you get this money to that person? And it's just amazing being part of kind of someone praying for resources and God providing resources through community. And so we are fully aware that as a community, we are a generous community. And so today is really about how do we grow in generosity? How do we become even more generous? And to do that, we're going to look at the Apostles Paul's letter to the Corinthians. So the, the letter that this verse I just read out came from. Um, and in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, chapter 8 and chapter 9, it's kind of the longest treating of generosity and giving in the whole of the New Testament. So it's kind of a good place to start, I think. Uh, we're not going to read the whole thing, you'll be glad to know. Um, but I would recommend that at some point this week, you just take some time to sit down and to read through this, to reflect upon it, to pray through it. 
Actually, if you are going to be at one of our prayer gatherings, which I recommend if you can get there on Wednesday night, we're going to use part of 2 Corinthians 9. We're going to use that as kind of uh, the basis for some of our prayer. And actually, if you can't get to one of our prayer gatherings, if you just go on to christchurchlondon.org slash prayer, scroll down, and then you can download the prayer guide. So we've got an hour's prayer guide. All of our gatherings are going to be doing that between 8 and 9. So even if you can't make it, download that, start praying with us at 8, and we can all pray together. So anyway, so that's 2 Corinthians 9 on Wednesday. Right now, quick outline. So Paul started this church in Corinth. Um, He's kind of got oversight for it, although he's not there physically. And he sends letters backwards and forwards. Uh, There's four letters that we know about, two that we have in the Bible. Um, And he sends people there to kind of get reports and come back to him. And he talks about a whole range of things. But in 2 Corinthians, he also talks about collecting an offering. And so this is for the church in Jerusalem, which is suffering a famine. And so Paul goes to all the churches that he knows is involved with and says, can you collect an offering to send back to them? And so the Corinthian church is a Greek church, fairly wealthy church. And so Paul is saying, can you collect money here and give it back to them? And so we kind of get this kind of insight or we can kind of observe how Paul encourages giving, which is a good thing. How does he motivate people to become generous? And in chapter 8, he starts by pointing to the churches in Macedonia, this kind of whole region. Um, And he's talking to the Corinthians about them, and he says that these Macedonians, they have the culture of generosity down. I mean, they are like ninja masters with generosity. And he says that even though they themselves were desperately poor, going through their own stuff, they collected this incredible offering and gave even more than Paul thought they could. He says, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. These guys were so poor that Paul didn't even mention the offering to them. So you guys have got your own stuff going on. I'll go to other churches. But they hear about this and say, no, please, we want to take part in this. We want to be part of this offering. And I don't know about you, but I find this type of sacrificial generosity somewhat alien, if I'm honest. Like, this isn't my natural reaction. Whenever Jax and I have been going through kind of financial difficulties, like, my first thought isn't, oh man, this is really going to affect what we give. My first thought is not, how can we cut out more from our lives so that our giving doesn't just go down but actually increases? That is not what I think, if I'm honest. Actually, Jax and I were talking just last week about maybe her taking an extra day's work. And so like, that's obviously an extra day's money. Again, my first thought was not, amazing, we've got more money to give. My first thought was, this would be really helpful for us. And so it's all very well Paul pointing to kind of incredibly generous people, but I want to know, how, how do I become like that? How do I get from where I am here with the kind of my attitude and my behavior around money? How do I become like the Macedonians? Well, if you look at what Paul says here, you see that he doesn't motivate them to give in the way that I guess many of us may have been motivated in the past. He doesn't motivate them by trying to guilt them into giving or trying to scare them into giving. Um, so last summer, uh, Chris and Liz Oldfield invited us for uh, lunch in their garden with about 20, 25 other people from like loads of different walks of life to talk about community and spiritual formation, which if you know Chris and Liz Oldfield is just classic Chris and Liz Oldfield. And so we were there and chatting to these people and I got talking to Sanderson Jones. And Sanderson Jones is the co-founder of the Sunday Assembly, which is a movement of effectively secular churches. So him and his um, uh, co-founder, Pippa Evans, they both grew up going to church and both walked away from the church, didn't believe in God anymore. But they realized actually there's so much about kind of the church experience that they really loved. 
like gathering on a Sunday, singing together, hearing inspirational talks, being part of a loving community that was helping one another become the best versions of themselves and do good in the community. And they thought, well, why don't we just do that just without God? And so that's what they do. So the London Assembly now is kind of all over the world as people who meet kind of to do church without God. And we got chatting about what it was like to lead church communities in London. Um, and he, he brought up the whole area of giving. And he said that it, we're finding it really hard to get our congregations to give enough in order to support the work that we are doing. And he said to me, you, you guys know that you have it easy. You just say, God says you have to give, and then people give. And I'm like, doesn't really work like that. I don't, I don't think. Um, and I guess behind this comment was this idea that the church can just command people Follow the rules. Okay, just follow the rules and everything will be fine. Or even kind of the worst version of this is God says give X amount, X percent, and if you don't, he will be displeased with you. If you don't give, he may even punish you and judge you. And like that is kind of an effective way to get people to give money, isn't it? I mean, like you could do that, but it's not a great way to get people to give money. I remember once uh, having a conversation with my first ever watch manager. So I was a firefighter on station, and we talked about how we'd moved to London to be part of this church that had started, and explaining like different things, and the whole topic of giving kind of came up. And we were playing pool at the time, which, you know, because I was a firefighter. I used to like to say I was a professional pool player, because I got paid to play pool, um, whilst doing other things as well. And we're playing pool, and like the whole subject of tithing came up, and I told him, that we give 10% of our pre-tax income to the church. And he, he was like taking a shot and he almost did like a double take. He like stood up, he's like, what? You, you give how much? And then he said this amazing thing, he's like, can't you just go to a church which doesn't make you give 10%? <laughs> he's like, find, find a cheaper church to go to. And like, if your kind of idea of like following the rules, we give in order to follow the rules, then why not find rules that are easier to follow? I mean, that kind of makes sense. He had this idea, like his wife uh, grew up Catholic and so understood kind of the concept of giving to a church. But in his mind, it was kind of like a gym membership or like a subscription, like a monthly subscription to an organization. Yeah, like that makes sense to him. But giving 10%, that was completely outside of his frame of reference. And so, like, I think you can, you can try and guilt people. You can try and say, well, this is what God says. You can command people. You can try and, like, appeal to just follow the rules. And yes, that can help people give more, but it doesn't make them more generous. I mean, the goal of this is that we become like Jesus, right? The goal of this is that our hearts are changed. And it's easy to modify behavior through guilt, through fear, but it's not easy to change the heart that way. And so we see that the Paul doesn't do that in this letter. I mean, he literally says in chapter 8, verse 8, I am not commanding you to give. Literally, that's what he says. And then he says later in chapter 9, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So if, God, uh, so if Paul doesn't play on kind of guilt and fear and like just keep to the rules, how does he motivate the Corinthians to give? Well, one of the things that he does is he tries to locate them in a bigger narrative, in a bigger story, by reminding them that they are part of a wider community, that they aren't kind of this isolated, isolated outpost all by themselves, but they are part of the wider family of God, and that therefore they shouldn't actually see their resources just for them, but their resources are a gift from God for the wider community too. In verse 14, Paul says, At the present time, your plenty, the Corinthians' plenty, 
will supply what they, the community in Jerusalem, need. So that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need when you need it. The goal is equality, as it is written. The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. And this quote here is from the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. It's the second book in the Bible, and it refers to what happened during the Israelites' 40 years wandering in the desert. So God had miraculously rescued them out of Egypt from slavery, kind of 10 plagues through the Red Sea, and there's like this 40-year gap before they get to the Promised Land, before they get to Israel. And in this time, they obviously, there's no way that they can hunt enough food, gather enough food, grow enough food in a desert to feed this whole nation. And so God miraculously provides for them. He provides bread from heaven. He provides manna. Now, no one knows exactly what it was. The Israelites called it manna, which literally translated means, what is it? Like, they had no clue either. So, like, this thing, so every morning, like, when the dew disappeared, there was kind of, like, this stuff on the ground that they could collect and bring in, and then it said you could either bake it or boil it, which I guess means either have sourdough or bagels, like, whatever your thing was. Um, but, so, God provides this miraculous bread, but he gave them strict instructions to the Israelites about how it was to be collected. So it's every day go out and collect enough for your family. And you have to eat it all that day. If you keep it overnight, then it starts to rot and it starts to smell, kind of gets infested with maggots and just kind of stinks out your tent. And so you have this situation where some families are able to gather a lot. They are full of young, able-bodied, fit people who can go out and gather lots. And some families aren't, and so that they can't. But because there wasn't any use in keeping it overnight, this kind of organic system evolved where those who had more gave to those who had less. And so at the end of the day, everyone had just enough. Not too little, not too much. Now, whether you believe this literally happened or whether this is just a myth told to kind of teach us something, I don't think it really matters because by Paul referencing the story here, he is saying that kind of manner and wealth are very, very similar. He's telling us something about our wealth by pointing us back to this story. And firstly, and I guess somewhat paradoxically, Paul is highlighting the fact that our wealth is both a gift from God and also something that we earn. It is a gift that we also earn, which in some ways doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, God didn't just kind of magically make baked bread appear in every Israelite tent. He didn't do that. He kind of, he just covered the desert floor with this stuff that they went out, if they worked for it, brought it back in, did what they needed to do, then they could eat. So yes, manna was a miracle. Without manna, everyone goes hungry. But actually, without work, everyone goes hungry too. So you have these two things together. It's a gift that we also work for. And I think it's really important that we see our wealth in just the same way. Because we work so hard for the money that we earn, we can just tend to think, this is what I've earned. And we forget that actually this is also a gift from God. If any of us had been born to peasants in feudal England, or on the side of a mountain in 13th century Tibet, or even in Syria, or like a whole other kind of number of countries today, it doesn't matter how hard we are earn, earning and working, we have, we'll have nowhere near what we have today. Like, this is privilege. This is gift. This is God blessing us. And it is so important that we remember that. And remember that God blesses us, not just for ourselves and for our own family, but for the wider community. You see, God provided every day enough for the whole of the Israelite nation, but he didn't provide every day enough for individuals. 
Do you understand that? So like there's enough for everyone, but as long as that was shared out. Some people didn't have enough because they couldn't earn enough. Some people had more than they needed. But God provided everyone enough. So the person who looked out and said, I don't have what I need, God hasn't provided. No, no, actually God has. It's just at the moment it's with your neighbor. And you need to wait for your neighbor to give it to you. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, nothing has changed. This is a principle that still goes on. I truly believe God provides everything a community needs for the community, but not necessarily for the individual. That's like a big distinction, isn't it? Does God provide for me? Yes. How? Through community. Not necessarily through what I can earn myself. And actually, I believe this principle applies on a macro level for the church, the global church, which is kind of a whole other topic that we can't get into today. Like the West has all this wealth and resources. The rest of the church in the world does not. But I think it also works on a micro level too. In chapter 9, Paul says that God is able to bless you. And that is a community you, a plural you. As we, our English language doesn't help us here. All the way through the New Testament, basically whenever you see a you, like read you, community you, not you, individual you. So God is able to bless you as a community so that in all things at all times, you as a community will have all that you as a community need and will be able to abound in every good work. Again, in verse 11, he says, your community will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. I believe that this principle is at work here, that God has blessed us as a church community across five services with all that we need to do all that God is calling us to do. It's not that I as an individual can always expect to be given everything I need, but as part of community, I can expect that. Every now and again, um, I listen to preachers that I wouldn't normally listen to, kind of from backgrounds that are very different to my own, just to get kind of experience and theology that I haven't been exposed to. Um, and last year, I was listening to a guy called Charlie Dates, Dr. Charlie Dates, who uh, leads um, a church called the Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago. Um, this church has a history. It's 100 years old. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. preached in this church. Barack Obama went to this church. Like this church has some incredible history. And I, last year, I was listening to the series that he did um, for their Black History Month, which in America is in February. Um, and it was all about kind of Christianity and the black church or the black community. And in one of his talks, I think it might have been the one called Wakanda Forever, you know, um, he talked about his own church's history and how it started during kind of the era of segregation and Jim Crow, a time when the black community was systematically pushed out to the margins of society and excluded from most of the cultural institutions, including the church itself. And so the black community, which was like almost universally poor, they had traveled from all over America to come to Chicago, kind of this booming city, and they're all kind of working very like, uh, mediocre jobs, not getting paid much. The community itself came together and said, we think it's important that we have a physical enduring presence in this city, so we will build a church. And so that's literally what they did. They kind of gathered, they pulled their resources together, they literally kind of built the church by hand, and you have this church 100 years later. And not just that, kind of the black community gathered together its resources and said, right, well, we will look after the poor within our community. We will start businesses for our community. We will help people from our community get elected to public office. We understand that actually the children in our community, they're not going to get the education that they deserve, so we will start our own schools. 
So HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, that is a thing in America, started by the black community in order to train and educate their own youth. And I'm not saying this is kind of like a racial commentary, although I think it's important to think about institutional racism. Like my point here is that a community, a poor community that pulls its resources together, that says we can do more together than we can do apart, can change a nation. It is completely incredible. Paul says in verse 6, if we sow generously, we reap generously. And I guess many of us may have heard that in kind of a prosperity gospel type of thing. Give money to the church, God will give you lots of money back. It's like an investment strategy. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying you sow money and what do you reap? You reap righteousness. Um, again, he like, quotes from the Jewish scriptures, this time from Psalm 112. And as we talked about before here, righteousness doesn't mean law-keeping, rule-keeping. Righteousness means right-relatedness. And so what he's saying here, that justice happens when you sow, and things are put right, and people are put back into the relationships that have been distorted. So everyone in a righteous society is relating rightly to God, relating rightly to themselves, to one another, to their work, to their career, to creation. And so Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you're not just giving your money to help a poor community, although you are, and that is amazing. What you're doing is you're sowing into the kingdom of God. And you will reap a harvest of righteousness, a harvest of right relationships. You will reap poverty being dealt with, yes, but also broken relationships being restored. Conflicts being healed, people and families being put back together. Individuals finding freedom, whole communities coming to know God. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like a good investment, doesn't it? That sounds like something good to give our money to, to sow our money into, realizing that if we do that here, if we sow generously, then we will reap generously, then we will reap a harvest of righteousness. And one of the ways that we at Christchurch kind of see part of that sowing is to start new services. We think it's an incredible way to help more people engage with faith communities and find communities where they can feel accepted and belong to, where they can start exploring faith and growing faith. And so I just, I love hearing stories come out of Sutton. Now I'm guessing, I don't think any of you have been to Sutton, right? No, Hannah has, she's preached there. Well, there we go. A few people have been to Sutton. Our money has made that possible. Isn't that incredible? There are people there who have found faith in Jesus and had their lives completely turned upside down or the right way around, however you look at that, because of the, the money that we here have given. Bethnal Green, um, if you get um, our monthly newsletter, you will see that last couple of weeks ago, they had their first ever morning service. So they're starting like a monthly morning service there, kind of building up to a regular morning service. Um, this is a venue that we help pay for. We here have sowed into this, and this, what happens here, that is our harvest. That is the stuff that we get to reap. We get to reap families being able to kind of raise their kids in London with other families, people coming to faith, communities being built. I mean, this, this is incredible. We are one service that is part of five, almost six, and actually we want to be seven. So we would love to start an evening service. We understand 10 o'clock in the morning, that is a barrier to a lot of people who might possibly want to explore faith. And so could we start a five o'clock service? Maybe somewhere like the Wheat Sheaf, which we all know and love. That's where we did our carol service. And so we are thinking and praying about this at the moment. We get to sow into this to have a harvest of righteousness. 
Or I think about steps. I don't know how many of you have been on steps. This is the course we run. I'm doing steps at the moment. There's step five yesterday, which is like a significant kind of confession day. Steps is this incredible resource that we as a church have financed. We financed a whole bunch of videos, a whole bunch of manuals. Steps is kind of being rolled out, not just in our church, but other churches in the UK and abroad. It's an amazing resource. People who have gone on steps really do find freedom from stuff. I am finding freedom from stuff. And again, this is stuff that we have given as a community that is seeing a righteous harvest. Now, I guess I do understand that some people, it's hard to engage with this kind of communal aspect, so I want to lay something else on you. Like, this is a reason that you should give generously. This is how Paul motivates. He says, it's good for you. Literally, it is good for you. He says in 8 verse 10, Here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. The best thing for you is to give generously. Why is that? Why is giving generously good for us? Well, because it is good for our soul. It is good for our heart. Remember the manna. Remember what happens when you hoard manna in your tent. It just stinks. It just rots. And my pastor growing up always used to say, money is like manure. Spread it around, causes things to grow pile it all up, it just stinks. And that is, there's a truth to that, isn't it? Like hoarding wealth does something. And why is that? Well, I think that's because wealth can so easily replace God as the thing that we look to to save us. It can so easily replace God in kind of giving us validation or worth or like we look to wealth to provide for us. We trust it with our future. Like, if we have enough, we're going to be okay. If we're not, then we won't. Like, all the things that God says, I want to do this for you, wealth says, hey, I can do this as well. And it's so often we get kind of turned from God to money. Think about this. If I said to you, what does it mean for you personally to be free? What does that mean? Now, I guess because we're in church, I might get some, like, spiritual answers. I might get kind of the quote-unquote right answer. I know that for me, most days, what freedom means for me is having a house in London mortgage-free. Like that, I would be free. I would feel, that's it, freedom. I'm in London in a house I'm not having to pay for, that is amazing. Or actually, it's freedom for me is freedom to do what I want to do. Like to go out where I want to go out, to eat what I want to eat, to buy the things for me and my girls that I want to buy, go on the holidays that I want to go on. That feels like freedom to me. And I don't think I'm probably alone in that. Honestly, so many of my concepts, like if I don't think carefully, they revolve around money. That I think money can bring me freedom at some kind of existential level. It so easily replaces God in my heart as the thing that I'm looking to to save me. Which is why Jesus says that you can't serve both God and money. Like they are in opposition because they're trying to provide the same thing. So you either go to God for this stuff or you go to money. You can't do both. And this isn't a one-time deal, by the way. It's not at some point in your life you said, yep, I choose God over money. It's all good now. Like, this is a daily adventure with God. Where we have to say, no, I want to choose you, God, not this other thing. Which, again, is why Jesus in the parable of the sower, if you remember that parable, there's a farmer who throws out seed onto different kind of um, soils. And some of it grows and springs up. Some of it gets eaten away. And he says there's one that kind of starts to grow and then it gets choked and dies. And Jesus says that that is like people who hear the good news about life with him and they respond to it enthusiastically, but then the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth start to grow up 
until eventually, if that isn't dealt with, they choke the life that was there. Um, if you know me well, you probably know that in the last few years I've been kind of investigating uh, Ignatian and Jesuit spirituality. This wasn't in my church background. I'm absolutely loving it. Uh, last year, I read the Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, which, as you can imagine, is a really good introduction into Jesuit spirituality by James Martin. And in that, he mentions this priest called Anthony de Mello, who was an Indian Jesuit priest. And he kind of came up with all these modern-day parables. He is an amazing storyteller. Like, how do I help my Indian culture engage with the truths of God? I'm just going to do what Jesus did and tell a lot of stories. And this is one of his stories. He says, The wise man had reached the outskirts of the village and settled down under a tree for the night when a villager came running up to him and said, The stone, the stone, give me the precious stone. What stone? asked the wise man. Last night the Lord Shiva appeared to me in a dream, said the villager. And he told me that if I went to the outskirts of the village at dusk, I should find a wise man who would give me a precious stone that would make me rich forever. The wise man rummaged in his bag and he pulled out a stone. He probably meant this one, he said. And he handed the stone over to the villager. You can certainly have it. I found it on a path some days ago. The man gazed at the stone in wonder. It was a diamond. Probably the biggest diamond in the world, as big as a man's hand. And he took the diamond and he walked away. But all night he tossed about in bed, unable to sleep. The next day, at the crack of dawn, he woke up and he ran to the wise man and he said, give me the wealth that makes it so easy for you to give away this diamond. I mean, that, that's a great story, isn't it? That is true wealth. That is true freedom, being able to give away something like this. We think of freedom and it is all to do with having it's having enough money, having the experiences, having the holidays, having whatever it is. But we can never have enough, can we? There's always something more. There's always like competition. How can I have more actually than this person? It's like money ranks us in this kind of horrible way. But real freedom, freedom to be like Jesus, freedom to give away extravagantly, sacrificially, joyfully, that is what we are looking for. It's the freedom to live without being controlled by the need to earn more or accumulate more or save more. And one of the ways that we can loose the grip that money has upon our hearts, one of the ways we can make ourselves aware of the lies, deceitfulness of money that says you need this in order to live the good life, in order to be happy, is to give it away. We can treat money giving like a spiritual discipline. A spiritual discipline is something that we do in the power that we have that gives God opportunity to do something that only he has power to do. So we can't change our own hearts. That's what the Bible says. But we can do something which puts us in the place where God can change our heart from the inside out. And I really do believe that giving is a spiritual discipline in this way. I have found, we have found giving regularly, so tithing regularly month on month, um, but also kind of giving to these special offerings as an incredible, powerful way of trying to kind of unloose the grip that money has on my heart. Of kind of fight against the lies that I need in order to be. No, I, I can give away. I can trust God. It is a powerful way to refocus our hearts upon God. To declare, I trust you, I don't trust money. And to show that, I'm going to give some of this money away. I'm going to sacrifice things that I could have been doing
There we go. Sacrifice things I could have been doing. Holidays I could have had. Like clothes I could have bought. I'm going to sacrifice these things in order to show, yes, God, I trust you. I trust that the life that you have for me is better than this life. I trust that actually sowing into your kingdom is better than me having the latest whatever. It's an incredibly powerful way. Maybe we can have the band back. In a moment, I'm going to ask us to respond to this by praying a prayer that I've kind of taken. Uh, there's a church in New York called Church of the City in New York. Every week when they pray, uh, when they give, they say something like this. And I've kind of adapted this. And I think it could be helpful as, as a way of us kind of praying into this. And I'll read it through once. And you may find it helpful to read along with it or maybe just close your eyes and then I'll ask us all to stand up and we can read it together, either in kind of the quiet of your heart, under your breath, and at the end of that, we can say amen together. But before I do that, I feel like it's important to say this. Next week, we are going to go, like next week, the week after, we're trying to raise £200,000, which is a huge amount of money. And I would just say, if you feel like you are part of us, if you want to be part of us, then give something. I really don't care what it is, but give something. So that in like three or four weeks' time, when we stand up and say, we've raised this much money, you can say, I was a part of that. And Jax and I have probably given more to church than anything else apart from taxes and kind of mortgage and rent over the last 15 years. There's a reason we feel ownership of this place. And it's not just because I work here now. Like that's been the last four years. We've been in London 15 years doing church. And we feel ownership here because we have given sacrificially at times into what church is doing. And so I would just say, it doesn't matter what you give, just give something, be a part of this adventure with us. Um, you may want to take one of these away. So next week, um, we're, like, these are pledge cards. So we understand that many of us give online. We just want you to have something to hand in. So next week, we're going to take an offering. You can fill this in. This is what I pledge. This is what I have given online. Fill this in. Drop it in. I'm in. Like, I want to be part of this. And you may find it helpful to take this away this week as kind of as a prompt to pray about this. And again, my encouragement to you is, like, there's not a fixed amount, like, for any of us. Like, that's not what I... I really honestly don't care what you give. I honestly couldn't care less. What I want for all of us is that we grow in generosity, that we use this as an opportunity to kind of practice the spiritual discipline of giving, that we say, I will sacrifice X, Y, and Z in order to give into this. That may be loads of money. That may be not money, like not much money at all. Jax and I have been talking about what we were going to give, and we'd kind of settled on a number. And last night, because I was preparing this, I was like, we need to up that number. Um, and then I just, I was standing, praying about this, and I felt God say, like, we've, we've got some money in the banks. we sold our house. So, like, there's money we could give. And, like, that would be a big show on my part. But actually, I, that's not where it hits me. It, where it hits me is in the day-to-day. -day. Like, is in the, I buy lunches every day. And I felt God say to me, okay, give up lunches for a year. Like, make your own lunch and give that money. Like, that's not the money we've got in the bank. Like, there's nowhere near. But for me, for my heart, I was like, this is what I need to do. Because I look to the things that I buy to fulfill me. So I don't want to live like that. I want to live like Jesus, generous, being able to give away, having more money in order to give. So that's what I've decided to do. So just this week, spend some time thinking and praying. Again, this is not a pressure. There's no guilt around this. Like give cheerfully, joyfully. That is what we want. We want next week to come in and to celebrate. 
Like, this is what we're giving to the church. We're going to trust God with this. If we don't make 200 grand, it's not a big deal. Like, God will provide in other ways. Or we're like, re-budget. Like, that's not a big deal. But what I want for us as a community is that we are growing in generosity. So that is my kind of invitation to you. Spend some time this week thinking and praying about what your contribution could be. And come next week ready to joyfully, freely give. Does that sound okay? Great. Let's pray this prayer. I'm going to read it through like I said, and then I'll ask you to join in. Holy Father, there is nothing we have that you have not given us. Everything we have and all we are belong to you. To spend all you have blessed us with on ourselves and our family alone, to give without sacrifice, to give out of fear or duty is the way of the world and a way that does not lead to life in all its fullness. But we trust that joyful, free generosity is the way of Jesus and of those who follow him. It is the way of those who are aware of the delusion of riches and their ability to choke the life of Jesus in us. It is the way of those who desire to live according to the kingdom of heaven rather than the systems of the world. Holy Spirit, I invite you to create in me a generous heart. We invite you to create in us a counterculture of generosity that you may free us from the love of money and release the resources you have already given us for the glory of Jesus and the good of the world. We resolve to grow in the practice of generosity because you are a generous God and we delight to share your traits and to show the world what you are really like. Amen.